If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheets are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or add a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheets bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheets for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com 1212. This is the World According to Zig podcast for February 23rd, 2020. My name is John Ziegler. I'm the host of this show. We can still get the truth about the news of the day from a conservative perspective in this world turned upside down. Please remember to check out my other podcast if you're interested in the political news of the day, specifically everything related to President Donald Trump. That is the Individual One podcast. You can find a link to that at our website, which is freespeechbroadcasting.com. That's www.freespeechbroadcasting.com. On this episode of the World According to Zig podcast, a lot of very interesting and diverse topics that you will not hear anyone else delve into, at least not in the way that you will hear it here. And I'm going to start with a couple of major developments in the never-ending Penn State, Joe Paterno, Jerry Sandusky saga, and also some news that's related to this podcast. You see, this podcast has kind of been in limbo largely because of potential projects related to the Penn State, Joe Paterno, Jerry Sandusky saga, and so this is all intermingled and related. So let me get to that first, and then later on, uh, a whole bunch of stories that I think you're going to find of interest, including some uh, fantastic uh, audio from my two-year-old daughter, Diana, who uh, had quite a fit this week. Wow, that was her. <laughs> I don't like it. Uh, I'll explain all that as we move along. But first, uh, two major developments in the news regarding the whole Penn State Paterno-Sandusky saga. The first is that although this didn't happen chronologically, this happened second uh, this week, but the, the one that got the most attention nationally was that the Paterno family has now, quote-unquote, resolved their conflict with Penn State University. And essentially what happened here was that the university agreed to pay some of, I don't know how much, but I'm assuming a, a good amount, of the Paterno family's legal fees that all came about because of the firing of Joe Paterno back in November of 2011 and the free report that the university paid for to essentially railroad Joe Paterno and the Penn State administrators uh, into creating the perception, which the media totally bought into, of a cover-up for Jerry Sandusky, which did not exist. 
And the media, of course, got their pom-poms out for the free report because they needed an explanation for why they were so in favor of Joe Paterno's firing uh, less than a year prior to that. And the university paid for the free report, and they had never until this week really condemned the free report and, and really had never even made had an official position on the free report. So in exchange for dropping all of their... Uh, grievances against the university uh, the paterno family specifically uh, sue paterno and i guess jay paterno who's now a member of the board of trustees at penn state and scott paterno who has been an arch nemesis of mine throughout this entire ordeal who was joe paterno's lawyer and uh, very very poorly positioned pr person during the crisis uh, a person that I blame most of this entire uh, fiasco for happening, which I'll explain uh, shortly. But the three of them are really at the center of this. Uh, Joe Paterno's wife and Joe Paterno's uh, two primary sons, uh, Jay Paterno and Scott Paterno. And uh, what they get was they get their legal fees, or at least some of their legal fees back, and they got a written statement from the University Board of Trustees, which acknowledges that the free report was just the opinion of Louis Free and his investigators, and that that opinion does not reflect the official position of the university. Uh, the Penn State University does not uh, necessarily believe that uh, Joe Paterno covered up for Jerry Sandusky's sexual abuse. Now, uh, they also got some nice words about Sue Paterno, uh, which I guess, I don't know what significance that has. But um, when I saw this, I was like, wow, all right. Uh, I know Scott Paterno is behind this. And I know Scott Paterno exceedingly well, all too well. Uh, Scott Paterno is a moron and a jackass and an egomaniac, which is a very deadly combination. Uh, he's a guy who was uh, born on third base because of his last name and thinks he hit a triple. And he's incredibly arrogant, and he and I have battled for many, many years. And I don't have time to get into the whole Scott Paterno story, but Scott Paterno is key to understanding how this whole thing happened because it was Scott Paterno that was the leading force within the family and the biggest influence over Joe Paterno convincing him that this whole Jerry Sandusky story was real, that they needed to get out ahead of it, that they needed to throw Jerry Sandusky under the bus as much as they possibly could in order to save themselves. And Scott Paterno did that. Scott Paterno declared Jerry Sandusky guilty on the Paterno front lawn, the front lawn of his legendary father, on November 8th of 2011. About 24 hours later, his father was fired, the president of the university, Grant Spanier, was fired, and two administrators essentially had already been let go or suspended and eventually fired because they were indicted uh, by this, the attorney general's office of the state of Pennsylvania in this alleged cover-up that did not happen for crimes that I now strongly believe never happened. And so Scott Paterno became as invested in the Sandusky narrative as anyone possibly could because if he's wrong about the Sandusky narrative, he goes from being a uh, family hero 
See, that's what people don't understand. Scott was a loser his whole life. He, he, he ran for Congress back when the Paterno family was, name was gold, and he got crushed. And, that, and, and I mean, so he, he's never done anything in his life until this. He got credit by, from the family, and he got credit from a book by Joe Posnansky, uh, who was chronicling Paterno's last season when this whole uh, shitstorm hit the fan. He got credit as the hero because he was the first one to understand the gravity of the situation, and he was the one saying Joe Paterno was going to get fired. So his great moment of his life, of his loser life, is that he was out front being right about how horrible the Sandusky scandal was. And that's what led to everything. That led to everything because once Joe Paterno is throwing Jerry Sandusky under the bus, Jerry Sandusky is now guilty because the great Joe Paterno has effectively said that he was. Once Joe Paterno is fired, the Penn State University is saying that Paterno's guilty. The administrators are guilty. Jerry Sandusky is guilty. My gosh, how could you fire the great Joe Paterno if that wasn't the case? And so then, seven months later, when Jerry Sandusky is convicted in the Salem witch trial, everyone has what they want. The free report comes out. The university is getting what they want because they're paying for someone to justify their firing of Joe Paterno. And if you understand the full story, it all makes sense. Of course, the media isn't capable of that because they're a bunch of freaking morons and they don't understand the full story. And they think that because the Paterno family uh, believes publicly, although not privately, not all of them, that uh, Jerry Sandusky was guilty, that therefore Jerry Sandusky must be guilty because otherwise they would be saying otherwise. They would be in their interest to say, wait a minute, Jerry Sandusky is innocent. No, no. No, because Scott Paterno is running the show, and if that were to happen, then Scott Paterno becomes the biggest fuck-up in the history of man because it was his decision at the beginning to throw Jerry Sandusky under the bus. He cannot go back on that. And so when I read the statement, I'm like, oh, boy, here we go. This is, this is Scott Paterno moron again. Because Scott has made every possible wrong decision since literally day one in this, thinks that he got a great concession here. He thinks in his moronic mind, in between eating Twinkies because he's obese, Scott Paterno thinks, ah, I just got the university to admit that the free report is just an opinion and it's not the uh, a reflection of the position of the university. Um, yeah, that's great, Scott. Congratulations. Uh, you know what? If you had gotten that the day after the free report, or ideally the day that the free report was released, that would have had some impact. That would have had some impact. If the university had essentially washed their hands of the free report conclusion saying, look, we paid for this load of crap, but we're not buying that this is the, the, the real story, then that would have had an influence. That would have greatly limited the ability of the NCAA to uh, intimidate the hell out of Penn State into taking down Joe Paterno's statue. Uh, then all those draconian sanctions uh, probably would never have been uh, put on Penn State, certainly not in the time period in which they were, because this thing happened at record speed, record speed, and it happened at record speed on purpose. Next football season, 
uh, transpired. And Louis Free, we now know, was trying to audition for a job with the NCAA in all this. We have this, we have know this from emails. And by the way, it worked because Free is now working as a consultant for the NCAA. As much of a fraud as Louis Free, the former FBI director, is. And Free's got a horrendous history if anyone ever wants to actually take a look at it. But anyway, so, so this kind of quote-unquote concession, if you go into a time warp, if you go into a, in, into a time machine and you go back to 2012, okay, that's got value. But in 2020, that has no value, especially when all it is is one or two sentences embedded within a written statement that nobody is going to read and which the news media... The news media is not going to highlight because it's not in their interest to highlight it because they already went fully invested into the whole narrative and fully invested in the free report. So the media is not going to do something against their own interest unless they are forced to do so. So if, if you're going to get any value out of this, you at least have to do a press conference where there's video of, let's say, the chairman of the board of trustees saying, look... Uh, we do not share the opinion of the free report. It is not the official position of the university. There's no apology in there, uh, at least not that I read it as an apology. And most importantly, at this, at this juncture, all these years later, the only thing that's really going to matter is if you put the statue back up because that's what people will understand. Oh, Penn State put the statue back up. It's, it's, we're living in a very visual world. Symbolism is everything. The statue would mean 10,000 times more in public perception than anything that would be written in a Friday evening statement or afternoon statement that gets released that the media ignores. And this was obvious to anyone with half a brain. Unfortunately, Scott Paterno does not have half a brain. And uh, so uh, Scott was touting this great uh, revelation, this great concession that they got. They, there is, they've, they've given up, by the way, any leverage to potentially get the statue put back up. I mean, the, the, the statue would only be put back up under enormous public pressure or some sort of legal pressure. So uh, once you've, you've signed away all your legal rights, now any theoretical leverage you have to have the university forced to put back the statue is gone. And so uh, Scott was touting how you know they had gotten this concession, and he, but he was decrying the news media, specifically ESPN, for not reporting on it. And I, as I have often done in the last eight years, I went after uh, Scott on Twitter for this. I said, "Look, uh, essentially, uh, what I just said in this in this uh, dialogue, this this commentary, that this was ludicrous. Anybody would know that you're not going to get any value from the news media. They're never going to report this, and therefore, the concession you got, Scott, is without value." There's no value here, but, you know, congratulations on getting some of your legal fees back. And Scott comes at, back at me, and the only way that Scott ever does come back at me, which is so incredibly relevant to understanding 
so much of this case. I mean, I really do believe that the the uh, Rosetta Stone of this entire fiasco is understanding Scott Paterno. And when I finally understood Scott Paterno, it was like a light bulb went off over my head, and I go, oh, my God, this is how it all happened. This explains it all. And part of how I figured out Scott Paterno was what he was saying about me. Because when you, someone is saying something about you, you know whether or not it's the truth. And Scott Paterno has been publicly trying to claim for years, for years, that I asked him for a million dollars to do a documentary on all of this uh, and to fix the record about what really happened in the case. This was way back before I even thought Jerry Sandusky might be innocent. This would have been back uh, in 2012, I think in my first trip to State College. And this is just completely and totally... It's just flat-out ridiculous. It's, it's not what happened, nor does it make any goddamn sense for what would have happened. I would never in a million years have taken a dime from Scott Paterno or from the Paterno family because instantaneously that would discredit whatever the hell the documentary was going to be. And I also knew damn right well Scott Paterno was not going to give me anything, even if I had asked, which again, I never would have, because it was clear as day from the moment we met that we were not on the same page. And that Scott Paterno did not trust me. I did not trust him. I mean, it was so ridiculous that that first weekend when Penn State was playing a home game, the first home game after the whole scandal occurred after Joe Paterno had died, after the free report, it was the beginning of the 2012 season, we're in Franco Harris, NFL great, Hall of Famer, Penn State uh, great. We're in his super box. And Franco is sitting next to Sue Paterno. And there's some other members of the Paterno family there. And I have a cameraman there because we're going to do a documentary, not without any, you know, not with any thought of any money from the Paterno family. I'm doing a documentary on what happened here. And I asked Scott politely, hey, can we get a shot of Franco Harris and Sue Paterno sitting together in the super box? Very simple shot. And Scott says, no. And at that moment, I knew, okay, this guy is a fucking idiot. This guy is an asshole. This guy is not going to be possible to work with. There is zero chance. Ze I mean, I knew, I knew at that moment, oh, my gosh, this is going to be a fucking disaster because this guy is, is a complete idiot. He's such an idiot that he prevents me, who's trying to do the story of how his dad got railroaded, from getting a simple shot of Franco Harris and Sue Paterno sitting together at the first game since Paterno's death. And guess who did get the shot? ESPN, on their broadcast of the game, got the shot of Franco and Sue Paterno sitting together. So, so the enemy, the enemy, which, by the way, the same enemy he's criticizing for their lack of coverage of this resolution he came to with Penn State University... I, the, the enemy, the ones who brought his dad down, the, the, the literal perpetrators of all of this was ESPN. They get the shot, but the guy trying to help, the guy trying to tell the truth, the guy who's literally in the room because Franco Harris invited me to be in the room, I'm not allowed to get the shot. So 
this colored my entire perception of everything going forward and really gave me quite a bit of insight into what a complete fucking idiot Scott Paterno is. But the hilarity of this is that Scott has lied about this publicly. And to be clear, the, he asked me. He asked, this is what actually happened, because I remember it very well. He asked me as if he was thinking about doing it on his own. He said, how much money would it take to do a documentary that would have an impact? And off the top of my head, I said, you would lead, need at least a million-dollar marketing budget on top of whatever it costs to actually do the film. In no way, shape, or form was I asking him for money or demanding money. It's completely and totally absurd. And I don't know whether or not he's lying or if he's just that dumb. I'm not sure. But I do know that it fits the narrative he's tried to create about me, which is that somehow I'm in this for money. <laughs> which is just unbelievable. You cannot be serious. I mean, I have lost enormous amounts of money. I have lost numerous opportunities. I've specifically lost jobs and who knows how many other things that I won't even know about all because of my position on this case. The idea that I, as in his words, I'm a grifter uh, because uh, uh, I'm still involved in this case eight years later is is beyond absurd. It doesn't fit. It's the opposite of, of reality and it's nonsensical. There's no money to be made by supporting uh, Jerry Sandusky's innocence. I can guarantee you that. Uh, and as I've already said, the opposite is actually true. But the ultimate proof of that is if I was a grifter, why am I anti-Donald Trump? As a conservative commentator, a grifter, the first thing that they would do was they would be on the Trump bandwagon. When, in fact, I'm the opposite. And my understanding is that Scott's uh, an anti-Trump conservative, too, although I don't know that if he still is. But it, it's the exact opposite of what reality is. And when I realize that Scott is, one, a liar and a moron who is invested in narrative. See, he's invested in the narrative that I'm a grifter, just like he's invested in the narrative that Jerry Sandusky is guilty because they fit his self-interest. They fit his self-interest because if I'm not a grifter, if I'm right, and I, I, I would love to know how he rationalizes in his brain how it is that Malcolm Gladwell uses me as the primary source in his chapter exonerating Joe Paterno and the Penn State administrators and poking doubt about Jerry Sandusky's guilt in his latest book, Talking to Strangers, which the Paterno family has praised. How does he, how does he wash the idea that I'm the source for Malcolm Gladwell, but I'm a grifter who's, uh, uh, you know, I don't forget the phrasing. He's used all sorts of phrasings, but basically that, that I'm a nut job. I would love to know how he washes those two things. How, how, do, does he, how does he fit that together? My guess is he doesn't because he just needs a narrative to hold on to so that he can maintain his own view of himself and his own self-interest. And if Jerry Sandusky is innocent, then Scott Paterno becomes the biggest fucking moron on the planet and his one great moment of glory and being a hero turns into exactly 
the opposite. And he cares more about that than the legacy of his father, who, of course, has been dead now for about eight years. So, uh, you know, it, it, this never ends. I mean, I mean, this the fact that this is all that Scott Paterno has to come back at me with a lie and a completely absurd 180-degree opposite of reality assessment of who I am as a person, very easy for him to he's invested. And once he's invested, there's no going back because his ego will not let him go back. Uh, And I have offered uh, Scott Paterno $10,000 to his favorite charity. I wouldn't do it anymore because he's not worth it anymore. But back, you know, 2013, 2014, I offered him $10,000 to his favorite charity to debate me about this case. And he refused to do so because he's a coward. And he knows I would clean his clock. And, uh, and boy, oh, boy. I, boy, I wish he would have taken me up on that because it would have been fun. And as far as the, the Paterno family resolution... Uh, I know most people that have been following this case are pretty disappointed. I mean, Scott, I'm sure, thinks that he won this great victory, but he didn't win anything. Because unless you have the statute, you don't, you don't win anything. You, know, you didn't get an overt apology. They're not going to get the statue back now unless something dramatically changes with regard to the public narrative. And, uh, and the statue, well, I'm, you know, the statue wasn't even a good statue, but that's the reality. You got to get the statue back because if you don't, then things are not restored to where they were. And if things are not restored to where they were, then people presume, well, there's a good reason and Paterno must have been guilty of something. And you can never even come close to fully restoring his legacy otherwise. Uh, Now, Malcolm Gladwell, interestingly, (laughs) Gladwell, ironically enough, was about the only major media figure, figure who picked up on what happened with regard to this statement by the university. He actually tweeted out that this was time to put the statue back because the university was acknowledging that the free report was just an opinion and did not reflect uh, the position of the university. For those of you who do not recall, uh, here was Malcolm Gladwell's evaluation of uh, my entire crusade for the truth in the Penn State Paterno Sandusky scandal and what he would consider to be a victory uh, for my position. I admire what you have done, um, and I, I would encourage others to read through it and reach their own conclusions. I think that you have, if we come out of this case by saying it's an incredibly difficult case and we should never have treated... Um, your Curly, Schultz, and Paterno the way we did, I think you have won. Yeah, well, I don't consider that to be a victory. Uh, I mean, maybe Malcolm Gladwell does. Uh, we're not even there yet, even though from a factual standpoint, we are. I mean, the free report has been discredited by the people who paid for it. I mean, Penn State paid many millions of dollars for the free report, and they now just consider it to be an opinion that does not reflect their position. That's their official position on this again very very few people know it because the media didn't report it and even when they did report it they didn't report it properly which if if anybody but scott paterno uh, should have understood that that was the way it was going to go down but there continues to be things that happen which are in the direction of my narrative i mean in a rational world if the news media did their job if they didn't consider this to be old news 
Something happened this week that should have opened everyone's eyes to not just Joe Paterno's innocence or the innocence of the administrators, but yes, directly to Jerry Sandusky, but really directly to the administrators. And that is that the main prosecutor, the chief prosecutor in the case against Jerry Sandusky, a guy by the name of Frank Fina, Frank Fina had his law license revoked. He was suspended by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court for a year because of his misconduct within the Sandusky case. Now, it is complicated as to what happened. It basically deals with the Penn State Council at the time, Cynthia Baldwin, and whether or not she was really representing the Penn State administrators or whether or not they went into the grand jury without a lawyer. In my view, this should have in completely invalidated the uh, convictions against Gary Schultz, who I've done the only interview that he's ever done, which we've not yet released, but it's extraordinary. It's amazing. It's a blockbuster in a rational world. Uh, he does not believe that Jerry Sandusky is guilty. And Tim Curley, who was the athletic director at Penn State at the time, their convictions should be completely thrown out based upon this whole Cynthia Baldwin situation. Because in the grand jury, they did not actually have representation. They thought Cynthia Baldwin was their lawyer, but it turned out she was not. And Frank Fina was behind all of that. And the Pennsylvania Supreme Court suspended him for a year. Now, this does, I believe, directly relate to Jerry Sandusky's uh, conviction as well in two levels. Number one, I realize conflicts of interest no, don't, don't seem to matter very much anymore, but the idea that Frank Fina was both in charge of the cover-up prosecution as well as the prosecution of Sandusky himself, to me, is a massive prosecution uh, problem, prosecutorial issue, because you are inherently invested if you're doing both, right? If you're doing both from a prosecutorial prosecutorial standpoint, it sounds like a good idea, but that's incredibly dangerous because then you start to see everything with tunnel vision. You're, you're believing, since you, you obviously believe in the guilt of Sandusky, and if you also believe in the, the idea that there was a cover-up and that the administrators were guilty of covering up for Jerry Sandusky, you're going to see all the evidence in a very distorted way, and that's part of what happened here. It was presumed Sandusky was guilty, so therefore all of the data that they had on the administrators was seen through the prism of, well, Sandusky's guilt, guilty, he's obviously guilty, everyone must have known he was guilty, therefore the only way to interpret the administrators' actions in their emails is that this was a cover-up. Well, that's not what really happened. What really happened here was that Sandusky was innocent. He was just stupid. And if anything, Penn State was being hard on Sandusky. They were actually going by the book. That, that's the great irony of this whole thing. Penn State did nothing wrong. It's only in retrospect when you go from Sandusky being a, a moron who did stupid things to Sandusky being the worst pedophile in the history of Pennsylvania that somehow you go, oh my gosh, this is evidence of a cover-up. And then the other element of this, which gets too complicated for most people to understand, and I've tried to explain this to Jerry Sandusky's appellate attorneys, but I really do believe that one of the, the greatest appeal issues for Jerry Sandusky is that the state of Pennsylvania 
went on a search and destroy mission for Jerry Sandusky's most potent witnesses. They eliminated his most uh, potentially beneficial defense witnesses, specifically the two administrators, Gary Schultz and Tim Curley, and Joe Paterno, and maybe even Graham Spanier, the president of the university. All of them would have raised, in some cases, grave doubt, and in Paterno's case, some doubt, about the main witness in the case, Mike McQuarrie. But they were automatically taken off the table. They were discredited. Two of them were indicted. The third one eventually indicted. Paterno was fired, and then he died. And so the 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 attorney general's office, I believe on purpose, went after Sandusky's best witnesses because they knew their case was weak. And then of all the misconceptions about the Sandusky case, that might be the number one. The, the state of Pennsylvania went into this knowing they had an incredibly weak case, so they had to throw everything they had against the wall, and they needed to create a nuclear explosion, which they did. And it worked probably better than they ever could have possibly imagined once they, get, once they allowed Joe Paterno to be hung out to dry because of Paterno's celebrity and the fact that he had just become the all-time winningest coach in the history of college football and the, the media craze that it created in the middle of November when nothing else was going on and NBA was on strike and football was in a lull. It was a very, very, very slow sports week. And so I believe that that's, that was a strategy by the state of Pennsylvania which prevented Jerry Sandusky from being able to get a remotely fair trial. So you got, but regardless of the details, I mean, you would think, right, that the lead prosecutor in the Sandusky case being suspended for a year because of his misconduct in the case might get people's attention, right? Wouldn't you think? I mean, really? Cannot be serious. And instead, nobody puts any of these thoughts together. The media just goes, oh, hmm. That's kind of weird. All right, let's move on. I mean, that's the way they, they, because they don't understand that there's massive amounts of evidence that the rest of this case is rotten to the core, as I've been trying to document for the last eight years. Now, as far as my efforts to document it and how it relates to the future of this podcast, I, I, I'm in an incredibly frustrating, my whole life has been a frustrating situation, but I am in a particularly frustrating situation right now with regard to this podcast and the whole Penn State Paterno Sandusky situation. And uh, while I can't get into all the details, it's basically this, that there has been a lot of interest in doing some sort of media project surrounding this case, especially now that Malcolm Gladwell has made it uh, somewhat tenable to do it. Uh, even in, in Hollywood circles. The problem is, and we're actually being harmed, we're actually being harmed by our own success because we've had some very productive meetings on the television side. And it is my opinion that the, the pod, there's two potential prod, projects here. There's a podcast, which might essentially replace this one, uh, that uh, that would detail the whole case we've even shot a pilot for this we've got a co-host who's awesome uh, you know you know on paper it's all fantastic uh, in my opinion this ought to be happening right now but there's a belief by the people who are involved in this that if a tv thing like a docuseries is going to happen that the podcast should be done in conjunction with a tv project except I am exceedingly skeptical that the TV thing is ever going to happen without the podcast first. <laughs> so we're in this catch-22 
this this limbo where you know based upon how screwed i've been over the last eight years i'm i'm assuming it's all going to turn out terrible uh uh in theory i mean anyone else in my position would be really excited about some of the things that are are potentially going to happen here I, I am not in that category i'm actually of the belief that some of the potentially really good stuff is going to get in the way of us just doing a damn podcast to get this all on the record which is all I really want. I just want there to be a full record of what actually happened here. And if people aren't interested, fine. But I think it's the greatest damn story that's never been told. In fact, that's one of the potential uh, uh, titles for what we would do, the greatest story never told, although there's some people that don't like that. But uh, the, the reality is that we're, we're in this limbo, and we've even got a meeting scheduled this week that's a pretty high-profile high meeting. And because of that meeting and others, and this is where I want to give a heads-up to people who have followed this case, uh, we are probably, almost certainly, I've been asked to, and I intend to do this, uh, because of, of these potential projects, I've been asked to put our website, framingpaterno.com, to sleep for a short period of time. I don't know for how long. It is currently, as we do this podcast, is currently still up. So if there's something at framingpaterno.com that you want to bookmark or a link you want to check out or save or whatever, I would urge you to do that now. I do not know how long the website will be put to sleep. I really don't. It, it could be a fairly short period of time. It could be a longer period of time. I don't know. This is all very much in a state of flux. But I wanted to give you a heads up that if you're, if you're someone who has followed the case, uh, I didn't want you to feel like, oh, my gosh, I'd always wanted to save X, Y, or Z. You'll probably still be able to search for specific links during that time period, but the website itself will have some sort of a message that, uh, you know, we're, we're updating it or whatever. Um, and I just wanted to explain why uh, that is likely to happen in short order. Now, interestingly, there is another, yet another, a Big Ten school who is involved in essentially a sexual abuse scandal. And this time, it's the University of Michigan. So we go from Penn State to Michigan State with the Larry Nassar case, which is absolutely real, the gymnastics doctor. And then after Michigan State and the Nassar case, we go to Ohio State and the wrestling doctor, who I've discussed that story uh, many times, and I am not of the belief that it is anywhere near the scandal that the media has made it into. And I'll get to a part of why I'm convinced of that shortly. And then, we, so we go from Penn State to Michigan State, it's like a virus, to Ohio State, and now, this week, to the University of Michigan. And the, it's remarkable, especially considering how their rivals, Ohio State and Michigan, how similar the Michigan story is to the Ohio State story. Uh, they both deal with doctors who appear to have been uh, flamboyantly gay and who have been dead for a long period of time. Now, the Michigan case, and I'm still open to what really happened here, the Michigan case, though, seems to have a lot more documentation than the Ohio State case does. It appears as if that doctor was technically fired and and repositioned and wasn't supposed to be. And but there's it, it's clear that there was documentation of legitimate complaints and legitimate repercussions against the Michigan doctor 40, 50 years ago. 
Uh, and of course, I'm always immediately skeptical in this day and age of stories that have only been told 40, 50 years later, especially in the post-Me Too era, especially with all the money on the table. Uh, there's all sorts of other things going on that might cause people to to make claims that are, are either exaggerated or not true. But from what I can tell on Michigan, there seems to be a lot more there. Ohio State, I believe, is reverse-engineered. And I believe it's reverse-engineered mainly because I've gotten to know the person at the center of it. Now, interestingly, the person at the center of it, a guy by the name of Mike DeSabato, De, De this DeSabato character, who's a former Ohio State uh, wrestler, I've spoken to him off the record for several hours. Uh, he's the one that really led the charge on the whole Ohio State thing. I believe Mike DeSabato to be nuts. I believe him to be insane. I really do. I think he is a... And I'm not alone. I mean, everyone I've talked to that knows him thinks that he's nuts, uh, like legitimately nuts. And if you don't uh, believe that after I tell you this story, well, then I can't help you. So I hadn't thought about Mike in a long time uh, and until I had tweeted that I had some questions about the Michigan story. This was before the Detroit News had reported uh, some documentation from way back in the day that convinced me, okay, there's something real here. That's all I said is I have some questions because this is awfully weird that we're going through the, the, the Big Ten Conference like this. Penn State begets Michigan State, which begets Ohio State, which begets Michigan. I have questions. Well, DeSabato tweets at me, of course you do. I'm like, uh-oh, here we go. So Mike and I proceed to get into it about Ohio State and his claims about the wrestling coach there many, many years ago. And this is the story that involves the Republican congressman from Ohio, Jim Jordan, who I hate, but I believe that he is being treated unfairly. I think his name is being used as a weapon to try to get media coverage, to try to get Ohio State to give free money to these guys all these years later when what probably really happened at most was that a gay doctor made uh, these guys feel uncomfortable. This was seen mostly as a joke at the time. I'm not defending the behavior, but it was a different era. Uh, and the call it, uh, quote-unquote, sexual abuse, uh, based upon what I have seen, it seems like a stretch, uh, especially when uh, DeSabato is on tape uh, j joking and singing about this doctor in a bar just a few years ago. And it's my belief that they saw what happened with Nasser and they realized we might be able to get Ohio State to pay us a lot of money because this gay doctor was harassing us. That's my belief. Long story short, DeSabato and I get into this uh, Twitter fight in which I say to him, why don't you finally do an interview with me? Do an interview with me and prove to me how wrong I am. And DeSabato, this is not an exaggeration, actually says, I will agree, agree to do an interview with you if you sign a contract to engage me in a fist fight. I'm not making this up. I'm not. This is not an exaggeration. This is what really happened. It's just flat out ridiculous. I, he says, sign a contract to engage me in a public fist fight. And then he says he'll sell tickets and, uh, and the whole bit. I'm thinking... This is the guy on which this whole scandal, which has gotten an enormous amount of media coverage, is based. This is the guy. This is the guy the news media takes seriously. He is going to exchange, allegedly, an interview with me for an agreement with me to engage in a public fist fight where he's going to sell tickets. Really? Come on.
<laughs> so of course I play along and I say, look, if you um, agree uh, in writing to pay my expenses to Columbus, Ohio, and uh, and since you want to sell tickets, I'm going to get a share of the proceeds, and you agree in writing to do an interview after this is done, I'm all in. I'll do it. <laughs> I'll take one for the team. Not that I believe he's actually ever going to do any of this, but sure. You want to beat the crap out of me? Show me what a great big guy you are, you ex-wrestler from many years ago. Fine. Uh, plus, I was also trying to expose just how nuts this guy is because he's literally making public demands of a fist fight in exchange for an interview. And of course, he never sent me a contract uh, for the fist fight, so apparently that's not going to happen, uh, for better or for worse. But this guy is crazy. And so uh, the, the Ohio State case, I still have grave, grave questions about. Was there something real there? Probably so, but I'm, I guarantee it's being greatly exaggerated uh, in retrospect for the purposes of trying to extort money from Ohio State. And I'm told from people at Ohio State that Ohio State's probably not going to pay which I, even though there, you know, now there's been like 170 people who claim that they were abused by this doctor, but I'm, I'm always very skeptical. Okay, what does that mean? What does that mean? He, he, I, I, and, and, and all these years later, when there's money on the table, I'm sorry. Without documentation, I, I do not believe you can find that to be a, a credible situation. Again, it appears to me as if Michigan might be a bit different there. And I wanted to uh, make that distinction. Speaking of sports scandals, I do want to mention what's going on with baseball and the Houston Astros. What a complete uh, clusterfuck this is. And how baseball and the Astros themselves have completely screwed the pooch on this issue of cheating. And the idea that no players are going to get punished, that the team is not going to get punished for this massive signal-stealing scandal that uh, happened over a couple of years and included the time period where the Astros won several championships, including a World Series title, over uh, the uh, beating the, the Los Angeles Dodgers, by the way, uh, uh, who got they, they got beat twice, the Dodgers did, by teams that were cheating. Uh, in situations where they could have easily won a World Series, that there's been no punishment for the players, no taking away of titles from the teams, and yet the only people getting punished are the general managers and the managers who the, the evidence indicates were actually trying to stop it from happening. And, and I'm going to get into this in a greater detail with a friend of mine, Len Casper, who's the play-by-play -play announcer for the Chicago Cubs, when I plan to interview him in a few weeks uh, he wasn't able to make it today, but I just wanted to, I just wanted to reference, you know, I've talked recently a lot about whether doing the right thing has any value anymore. And boy, this whole uh, baseball scandal really proves that doing the wrong thing has almost no price, especially if you're rich and famous and you win, you rich, you're famous and you win, and uh, you can get away with just about anything. And it's really been interesting that the the commissioner has been incredibly lame in responding to this. The Astros have been lame, uh, but the, there have been major players who have stood up uh, when the media has not. The baseball media which is, is invested in doing the bidding for Major League Baseball. ESPN doesn't want to piss off Major League Baseball. The Major League Baseball Network doesn't want to piss, piss off Major League Baseball. So they're, they've been downplaying this whole thing. They haven't been obsessed with it. 
but it's been some of the players that have stood up and said this is bullshit. And oh, by the way, I, I you know some of the players this week even said they now believe the the buzzer theory. Uh, where Astros were using buzzers in their jerseys, which is why w- one of the star players didn't want to have his jersey taken off when he won the hit the game-winning home run uh, to win to win the championship, which was a very suspicious video. And now that there are players saying that, yeah, they they believe that's probably what happened. That's why I didn't want to take his shirt off. I, now I believe that that's probably uh, the scenario that occurred. But. Even LeBron James stepped into this uh, via Twitter this week, so good for him because it's when when the players are the last line of defense here to preserve the integrity of their game, uh, you know there's a problem, but at least they're doing it. No one else has the guts to do it, but at least they are. Now, one other sports story that actually has a, a very uh, happy ending, which caught my attention, and we don't talk about hockey very much on this podcast, but uh, well, there's reason to do so today. The NHL has a very strange rule that uh, is, is quite fascinating. And without getting too much into the details of it, it, it goes like this. Uh, NHL hockey teams have two goaltenders on their roster at any particular time. And, but because goalie is such a unique position, uh, the teams are given an emergency goalkeeper at any particular site in the National Hockey League. In other words, so each team has their two goalkeepers, and then there's a fifth goalkeeper who sits in the press box during the game just in case one of the teams loses both of their goalies because there's no one else that can just step in in the equipment and do the job of goalkeeper. It's a very specialized skill. So generally, this this emergency goalkeeper, it's just somebody from the city where, where, which is the host team. They can play for either team. And it almost never happens. It happens occasionally, but even when it does happen, it's usually at the end of a blowout or, uh, you know, it's, it's meaningless. It's only for a few minutes. But last night, something really amazing happened. On Hockey Night in Canada, which means that a huge portion of Canada is watching because that's a huge tradition in Canada on Saturday nights. The Carolina Hurricanes were playing the Toronto Maple Leafs in Toronto. And the Carolina Hurricanes lost both of their goalies in the second period. So about almost half the game was still left to go. And so the emergency goalkeeper got called out of the press box, got uh, sent down to the locker room, put on the goalie equipment, and sent out onto the ice to play for what is essentially the rival team because he's from Toronto. And what's fascinating about this is this was a guy whose job it is is to be the Zamboni driver of a local minor league hockey team. He's 42 years old. He plays club hockey, and he's a survivor of a kidney transplant. 42 years old, Zamboni driver. And he goes out there for the Carolina Hurricanes and he does tremendously well. Guy named David Ayers. David Ayers, look him up online. Google him. Uh, look him up on Twitter. Look at the interviews. What an amazing story. The Carolina Hurricanes end up winning the game. Now, the only 
Sad part of this is, can you imagine if it was the Toronto Maple Leafs who had needed the emergency goalkeeper, and at home, uh, he would have been able to win for his home team. But in fact, he ends up helping the, the visiting team win the game. It's the first time in NHL history that a visiting goalkeeper, I'm sorry, an emergency goalkeeper has ever technically won a game. He gets credit for the victory because he was able to uh, play goalie for a long enough period of time, and they ended up winning the game. So he gets credit for the win. Uh, just a remarkable story, and and really what uh, sports is is supposed to be all about, although it rarely is in this day and age. It's also uh, interesting to point out that this all occurred on the 40th anniversary of the Miracle on Ice. 40 years ago, in 1980, during the Winter Olympics, the United States hockey team defeated the Soviet Union in the greatest upset, at least in my experience, in Olympic history, as far as team sports are concerned, uh, I will never forget it because I was about one of 13 Americans who was following the USA hockey team very closely, even leading up to the Olympics. I just had a feeling. I had a feeling. I swear to God, I had a feeling that that team had something. And they were a bunch of amateur kids playing uh, college hockey, going up against the state-run pros from the Soviet Union, the greatest hockey team in the world at that time. And the game was not even on television. Imagine that today. Imagine that. I mean, that's how freaking old I am now. 40 years later, 40 years later, that would be an impossibility that uh, a game of that magnitude would not have been on television. It was not on live television. It wasn't even on live radio. Now, apparently there was a broadcast of it in Canada because when I, I mentioned this on Twitter yesterday, there were some people on the Canadian border that got very upset with me because they were apparently able to watch the game live. But ABC did it tape delay, uh, and the only way I could even get a score, imagine this today, I mean, in the Internet age, <laughs> the only way I could even get a score of the game was to listen to KYW News Radio in Philadelphia because every 15 minutes, if you were lucky, Sometimes it's only every 30 minutes. They would give you a quick sports update with the scores of the major games. So I was listening to news radio to get a scoring update every 15 or 30 minutes. And when the United States won that game, wow, that was one of the more exciting moments of my childhood. 1980 was the best year of my life. I mean, I mean if, if you, I've always said that you can... Uh, determine a lot about my view of the world because I've been disappointed that 1980 will never be recreated. <laughs> I mean, in 1980, I'm a 13-year-old sports fanatic who has the following things happen. I'm living in Philadelphia, and the USA hockey team wins the gold medal after defeating the Soviet Union. Uh, the Philadelphia Phillies win their first World Series. The Philadelphia Eagles get to the Super Bowl. The uh, Philadelphia 76ers get to the finals of the NBA championship, and the Philadelphia Flyers get to the Stanley Cup finals, and Ronald Reagan ends up winning the presidency. I mean, that was the greatest year of all time. There will never be <laughs> ever another year. in the. It, it, I've been paying for it ever since. I've been paying for 1980 ever since. And uh, But certainly the, the hockey team winning over the Soviet Union was one of those uh, very, very great moments that will never, ever be duplicated. I'm going to end the show with uh, something I alluded to at the beginning, which is that uh, my two-year-old daughter, Diana, had a, uh, a freakout this week that was recorded by her mom. 
her mom and her sister Grace, who was uh, celebrating in the background of this video that you're only going to be able to hear the audio of, because she loves it whenever uh, she's no longer the uh, the problem child. Uh, but my seven year old Grace was very excited to see her two year two year old sister completely freak out, uh, and um, and and this was recorded by her mom, uh, my wife. And this really kind of speaks for itself, but I, I feel badly that when we did the interview with Diana over Christmas, that I didn't do a very good job of, of getting the best out of her because she is quite a character. Uh, and uh, this will give you a sense of just how much energy and, and lung capacity uh, Diana Ziegler really has. This was her freaking out uh, while shopping with her mom and her sister earlier this week. know how much of uh, influence there was over her mom telling her that daddy was going to find out about this as to why she ended up having such a meltdown it was my impression that the cause for this tantrum was that diana was told that it looks like that the two candidates for president this year are going to be bernie sanders and donald trump that's what i think probably happened now, that, that was my theory on what caused this meltdown. You know, she was thinking, oh, my gosh, it's going to be Bernie Sanders against Donald Trump in the first presidential election of my life. No, 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 no. <laughs> so if nothing else, we got a couple of valuable drops to use on future episodes of the World According to Music podcast. Should there be any, which, again, I must continue to tell you, we are in limbo, and I will continue to update you when we know more. So until next time, which I have no idea when that will be, I do assume it will be at some point, I ask only two things of you. Number one, please make sure you share this via social media, Twitter, Facebook, what have you. Number two, if you're one of those people who sleeps, when you sleep, you use sheets, please pay attention to this important message. My name is John Ziegler. Our website is Free Speech Broadcasting. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed. Ever. These sheets are... Mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should, oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com 1212.